Amen. We are starting a new series in the book of Colossians this morning, and so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 1. My name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you guys this morning. I'm excited to talk through this letter and see what God has to say for us. So here is how the letter begins. It goes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So I, I remember the first time that I prayed with Holly Butler, and she had a, a unique way of praying that I wasn't used to. And I remember hearing about how she prayed, uh, and she invited me and my wife to sit and pray with her and do something called healing prayer, and I didn't really know what that was. So we sat down. There were some things that we really needed to work through in our marriage, some things that needed to be healed and talked through and prayed through and really just encountered Jesus in that moment. And so she said, hey, meet, us, meet me at this time in the church. I'll have a friend with me and schedule out like two hours. I was like, two hours? We're going to pray. And so we sat down and Holly asked us, hey, what do we need prayer for? So we told her. And then she says, okay, so here's how we're going to pray. I'm just going to ask Jesus what he wants us to pray for. And then I'll just follow his lead for the rest of the time. I was like, Okay, sounds vague. So she then proceeds to uh, sit there and her prayer starts off with, Jesus, what do you want me to pray for? And then she just sat there silently for 30 seconds, for a minute. I started looking around. (laughs) I was like, are you like waiting for God to like talk to you? She just kept waiting. I'm like, this ain't gonna work. (laughs) Then Holly begins to just pray something that she felt like God brought to her mind, something that was particular to my wife. And I was like, I don't know if that's gonna connect. And then I look up, my wife's sobbing. I was like, whoa, it worked. The rest of the night was filled with tears, both on her end, on my end, and the entire time, Holly did the same thing. She just said, God, what do you want me to pray for? And then she would sit there quietly and wait. And I remember walking away from that encounter with Jesus going, I want to learn how to pray like that. So the first time I tried to do it, I sat with a friend. They were asking about some advice on some life scenarios. I was like, hey, why don't we try to pray like this? She's like, yeah, sure, I guess. And so we sit and pray. And she goes, we sit there quietly asking God to speak to us. And she stops and goes, hey, uh, I feel like I got this picture of a pomegranate. And I just internally am like, this is ridiculous. This does not work. Holly's got the power. I couldn't. So I laugh and I'm like, okay, well, you know, maybe we should ask God what the pomegranate's about. And so then we sit and pray and I hear kind of like in my guts, like, hey, you should look up pomegranate in the Bible. So I stop and I go, hey, I feel like we should look up pomegranate in the Bible. So we look up pomegranate in the Bible and I read a passage, some obscure reference out of the book of Exodus. And I'm like, as I'm reading, I'm like, this is such a joke. This does not work. I'm gonna look like a total fool. And as I get done reading it, my friend goes, oh my gosh, 
Jake, you have no idea how much that speaks to me. And I was like, really? <laughs> and that's how I learned how to pray from Holly. Um, prayer is one of those family conversations, right? You're not just talking to your father. You're talking to your father with brothers and sisters. And so often I feel like we get too quick to be anxious about what we're gonna say and how everybody around us is hearing that we don't slow down enough to actually listen to how our brothers and sisters are praying, especially when we pray with someone who is far more spiritually mature than us because then it has its own powerful effect of maturing us, listening in on someone's prayers. That's what happened with me, me and Holly. I just listened to her pray, and I was like, I want to be like that. That is what the book of Colossians begins with. We are listening in on a prayer. Paul writes a letter to the church in Colossae, and the first part of it is so much a prayer that as we keep going in the series, you're going to be like, I'm not really sure where he stopped praying. And the church is intended back then to hear his prayer, to have this maturing effect that they would grow up in Jesus. We get to listen into the prayer in the same way. We're meant to hear what Paul is praying for. And I just want to walk through this passage with three questions that are really simple, but I think will help us. What is Paul praying? Two, why did they need to hear that prayer back then? Three, why do we need to hear it today? Okay, so what is Paul praying? Why did they need to hear back then? And, and why, do we, why should we care today? So let's start off to set the scene a little bit more. Paul the apostle is locked up in a prison. Okay, he is likely in the city of Ephesus. It's maybe like a day's hike away from this small village of Colossae, this little city. And his living conditions are obviously pretty horrible. It probably smells like urine or feces. There's really no good food situation going on for him. Lighting is terrible. Who knows how, when the last time it was that he actually saw sunlight. The only redeeming factor that he has as he's sitting in the bottom of the cell is he's allowed to have visitors. And so a visitor comes along, namely this man named Epaphras. And Epaphras comes to him and gives him this report. Paul, guess what is happening in the church of Colossae? You wouldn't believe it. And that lifts Paul's heart up into thanksgiving. Here's my question, though. What church updates could possibly be so good to hear that if you're sitting in the bottom of a prison cell with bad food, horrible smell, haven't seen sunlight, and for Paul, he's likely the threat of death is right there. What church updates could he hear from Epaphras, his fellow missionary, that would make him lift himself up out of his own situation and just start celebrating? Like what could be that good and that encouraging? Was it explosive church growth like we see in the book of Acts? Did their city begin to ask the church to step in on political affairs and so you can see that they have favor with the city? Did, there, did, did people start getting healed in mass and miracles start showing up? What lifts his heart up out of the prison? We always thank God, he says. Look in verse three the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of the faith in Christ Jesus and of the love 
that you have for all the saints? Love. He hears that this church has love. That's what he's praying. He is thanking God because Epaphras told him, hey, you wouldn't believe what I'm seeing in this church. They are loving each other in this radical way. And then Paul, from that moment on, starts getting on his knees every single day with Timothy, and they start pleading with God and thanking God, thank you that love is showing up in this church. Love is what lifts him up out of that scenario and allows him to celebrate. But it's not just that he is using this as a way to encourage himself. He wants the church to hear how he prays. He wants them to know that it is love that is the mark of whether or not a church is really healthy or not. And imagine that as he's praying this, he probably has Jesus' words from the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What Paul is praying for at this moment in in, in personal worship and gratitude that just kind of overflows and gets him excited even though he's in the darkness is that he can see the fruit of the gospel in them. They are loving each other. They are caring for each other. He says faith, love, that is growing up out of hope. The heart of it, though, is really love. What he says is that faith, really, the the, the proof that there is faith is that they love each other. And the reason that they can love each other is that they all share the same hope, a hope that God really is going to redeem all things, that Jesus really is renewing creation, that he really has, in his death and resurrection, he's made a new human family And that family is going to get to inherit the world. That is the hope they have. So then, of course, when you're looking around in church and you realize that you share the same hope, you're like, I better love my brother and sister. We're going to the same place. This world we're inheriting together. Faith, love, and hope. But love is that thing that he highlights. He needed that. He needed to see that. He needed to be brought out of his own situation of prison. Because here's the challenging thing about suffering. Suffering has the negative effect of zeroing in yourself on yourself and your own situation. There's a lot of talk in the scriptures about how suffering can produce a lot of these beautiful things, but there is the the way where it could actually have a negative effect where it makes you bent in on your own situation or yourself. And what Paul needed is to get swept up into this reminder that what he sees at Colossae is not just this really neat, nifty, coincidental thing that's happening at Colossae, but they are believing and loving each other because the gospel has come to them And indeed, he says, in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And he says, he told us about your love. He needs them to know, and he needs himself to know, that the evidence of love isn't just like a really like neat and warm thing. It is the evidence that God is doing what he said he would do in the world. Love is proof that Jesus resurrected from the dead. 
Love is proof that the gospel is actually growing up in the world all around. And so in order to get his eyes not just fixed on the fact that he constantly has to smell nasty things, be in darkness, and wonder or not if he's going to get killed because he's trying to go after the gospel, is that love is going out throughout all over the world. And Paul goes, I'm a part of that, and so are you. So why did they need to hear that? It was a pretty dangerous thing to follow Jesus in that time. Because life was not a private affair. If you were in a city, there are the seen inhabitants, people who live there, but there are also the unseen inhabitants, the powers, the gods, the authorities, the things that you really had to work together as a community to appease just in case an earthquake happened, you knew what to do. So what happens if a whole community starts to say, actually, we don't follow Caesar, we don't follow the gods, we follow Jesus? That's a problem for the community to be dealt with. You deal with Christians. So the pressure is coming in from all around, and one of the temptations, likely in Colossae too, was here's a Jewish synagogue. They kind of fit in already into the, the, the structure of the society and the city. We got kind of the same story. Why don't we just do some of the same practices? And Paul goes, no, 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 no. You need to understand that you are growing up in the gospel and love. They need to hear that love is the core and the center and that it is the evidence of Jesus. And they need to hear, look, you started off in this. Don't go away from this. Don't ever depart from love. If there ever is a moment in which your church is not exploding in love for one another, that's a problem. That is the way you know. So why do we need to hear it? Because if we don't hear this, what's gonna happen is we're gonna take whatever standards our culture sets for us for what church success looks like. If we don't hear the spirit of God speaking through this prayer and this letter and Paul tell us this is what is evidence that Jesus is actually in a place, we'll just adopt whatever the culture says. This is what excellence looks like. We might take our cues from Amazon where the church is a product and so we are happy to show up for what it can bring to us so long as it costs us as little as possible, as efficient as possible. And if we aren't satisfied, you best believe we're gonna make our complaints known with a star review. You might take your cues from TV streaming, where church should be an endless stream of highly emotionally moving and entertaining sermons. Worship that gives me the tingles every time and fits into my personal preferences. Otherwise, I'll just switch churches as fast as I will, switch from Netflix to Disney Plus when I don't see anything good on. Here's the beautiful thing about love, too. Love turns it back around on us. No longer can you adopt from our culture, I don't know if this church is doing it for me, feeding me, or giving me what I need. Really, it goes on us, and it's not, do I get loved here? It's, are you a part of love? Because if you're not, then you are not a part of what Jesus says is evidence that the gospel is actually there. This is where we are to lean in. In 
2019 to 2020, I felt like it just became increasingly popular to just like rag on the church. And uh, everyone had really well-articulated critiques of how the church in America was failing in this area or this area or the leadership was failing in this area or this area. And I felt like a lot of that even started to like brush off onto me, onto my family, onto my wife. But then Asher happened. My son was born early and uh, at 29 weeks, and they, they, we went down to the recovery room, and they told us, hey, Asher is not breathing. We can't get him to breathe, and we will call you if we have to start doing CPR, and it's time to say goodbye. And so we desperately just let people know in the church to pray. And Here's, here's a particular example for me that just like really, really like made me believe in the church and in love. Everybody put together a 24-hour prayer thing so that every hour from that point on for the next two days would be covered in prayer. And there was a, there's this guy who, before this season, I really didn't know at all, and we have nothing in common. We don't share any of the same hobbies. We don't like any of the same things. We weren't really friends. His name's Nate Harper. But guess who was praying every night from 2 a.m. to 4 to make sure that no hour would go unprayed for? That's love. I see it in this church. This last year made me go, you know what? No, I believe that Jesus is here. Here's how I know. People love each other. Then, I mean, you know, one of the other examples is Eliana Mullins wrote a letter for my son so that he could have it over his NICU box, saying how much he was loved and that she was praying for him and couldn't wait to meet him and hold him. Love. I, I was, as I was reading this, I really just wanted to like get up here today and encourage you guys and say, I am seeing this in our church. And in the same way that Paul prays, I'm praying, God, don't let them ever depart from love. Jesus, do not let this church go anywhere else but being grounded more deeply in the love that comes from sharing a hope in you. God, don't let them get sidetracked on anything else the world might try to distract from. Don't let anything get in the way. Let them be filled with love. Let that continue. Let that deepen. Let that be the thing that everybody around us knows us by. Wow, they really love each other. So he thanks God for what he sees in his prayers, but he also tells them what he's praying for. And in verse nine, he prays, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The second thing that Paul prays for is knowledge and power. What's he praying? Well, what is he saying? First, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. The good news about Jesus often comes to us in like really simple terms. In fact, in the beginning, we have a hard time even articulating it, right? Like we have this experience with God and if someone were to ask us what happened, you'd be like, I don't know, Jesus died for my sins and he saved me. I just know it became real to me. And, I, and this is a young church in Colossae. The gospel has just taken root there. 
And that is a beautiful, simple thing. When we can articulate the gospel in the most just simple ways that Jesus died for my sins. But Paul's prayer is that they wouldn't stay just there. He wants this young church to grow in the knowledge of his will. He wants them to grow and know God and what he is doing in our world through Jesus. That they would get to know the plan of saving that God's doing, the healing that he's doing, the renewing that he's doing, so that they could then step in and participate in it. So we're not just talking about a knowing in the sense of how our culture talks about it, an intellectual like brain dump where you get information, but a knowing in the sense of practicing and living out this gospel. Knowledge in the Bible is always a humble posture of knowing God is God, you are not. And then it's recognizing his story, his plan, his world, so that you can go live it out in every place of life that you find yourself. Our faith always begins with hearing what Jesus has done. But the heart of Jesus is not that we would just sit on some kind of sidelines, but that we would join into what he is doing. And it says right here that it actually pleases him. I don't, that, that is something that I feel like we kind of like skirt around or maybe feel uncomfortable saying like, like when we live in light of the gospel, Jesus actually is pleased. He delights in it. This isn't like a performance type thing or a legalism type thing. This is a father and the son working together with the spirit in us. And every time that we live out the gospel, even in little bits and parts as we're figuring it out and it's imperfect, every time we do, he just celebrates. He goes, yes, they're living out the gospel. That's amazing. And I think the attitude that sometimes we have is that God would be some kind of like this really grouchy, angry father. And when we just try a little bit and we fail, he's like, oh my gosh, when are you gonna figure this out? But we all know that's a bad father, right? Like when my son just reaches for anything, I lose my mind. Even the other day when I had a cup of coffee, luckily it was lukewarm. I was nursing it for most of the days because I really needed the caffeine. So I go to take a sip and I didn't know that his reaction time was that quick yet, but he just grabs it and it spills all over me. It spills all over him. There's stains of coffee everywhere. Shirts are ruined. And I go, oh my gosh, it's amazing. (laughs) That is how God treats you. When you try with any semblance of wisdom, mind you, that God gives to live into the story that he has given us and adopted us into, he celebrates. It pleases him like a father. So why did they need to hear that back then? Well, they need to know that it begins with prayer. He's discipling them in that he is telling them what he's praying for, but he's praying it. And he's praying a bunch of things that we have no power over, right? Fill them with the knowledge of God's will in the wisdom, spiritual wisdom, the wisdom that the Spirit gives and understanding, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. All of these things are things that we have to pray for because they belong to God. 
So he wants them to know, yes, you've begun in love. I want you to grow in maturity in it. How do you do that? I'm doing it right now. You pray. You pray that God would give it. And this is the cool thing about praying for, for, for wisdom. James tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. That's like one of the few prayers I see in the scripture where it just seems like it's guaranteed. If you ask for wisdom, God's gonna give it. Wisdom in God's category of things, mind you. Humble reverence, knowing you are not God, he is, and then living in light of the gospel story. We need to hear this prayer. Why do we need to hear it? The same reasons that they did. Our world is too obsessed with knowledge. You can get it anywhere at all times in any access of fashion, and it doesn't even need to be quality of knowledge. We just want knowledge, right? Like we could just get an answer on Google. None of us checks if it's right. You just get the answer to whatever question that you and your friend were joking about. We need to see in the same way where we run to when we need knowledge. Prayer. We research, we obsess, we anxiously run around, we try to plan, we figure out strategies, we do anything that we can to skirt around the fact that knowledge and wisdom and the power to live into the gospel, it comes from prayer. Hear that. Being a Christian in this time and in this place, it is not going to get easier, apart from God doing something radically different in our culture. Following Jesus is not gonna get simpler. It's gonna get more confusing. Following Jesus is not gonna get more comfortable. It's gonna get more uncomfortable. The only way as a church we can move forward into the next 100 years of whatever comes next, or even just in our lives, is through the power of prayer. So what are we to do? We pray. We pray. So I pray for you guys. I pray that God, in, even beginning in this week, God, that you would fill them with the knowledge of your will. That they would go home and you just spark creativity on what it would look like to live out the gospel as a mom. On what it would look like to live out the gospel as a teacher. On what it would look like to live out the gospel as they exercise. God, I pray that you would give them the knowledge and the wisdom to know how to take the love that you've given us and to steward it so that we would live in light of the gospel. Jesus, I'm praying for that for them right now. But we need more than just wisdom. We need the power to live it out. He says in verse 11, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. It's gonna take strength to live this out. That only comes from God and his glorious might. When, when we first brought Asher home from the hospital, now, I know, you're like, how many, like, illustrations are gonna come from the hospital in this year, Jake? <laughs> well, honestly, until he sleeps through the night and I can get some creativity back from lack of sleep, <laughs> that's what you guys are getting. <laughs> but we got home from the hospital, right? And I had this horrible attitude. This is like what I was talking about with you guys earlier. Suffering has this ability to produce really beautiful things in us. If it is coupled with knowledge and wisdom, knowing that God's God, you're not, 
Otherwise, it can create bitterness. That's what it started to do in me. I got home, and I, I remember all these different scenarios, but basically my attitude was, if your life wasn't worse than mine, I didn't want to hear about it. I'm not proud of it. It's not good. It's not godly. But I remember my friend Mark, you, you know, he had a baby the same time that we did, and we were talking about just challenges, praying through stuff as a group, and he was talking about the challenge of having two, two kiddos instead of one. And in my heart, I was like, dude, your life sounds easy. You have no idea what it's like to have a kid on medical equipment at home. And you know what God does when you have that attitude? Humbles you. Every time. And the person that would always, he would use to humble me is this family that you might know, the Stone family, particularly Melissa and Dan Stone. Because what he is praying for in here that they would not just know how to live out God's will, right? It's one thing to know it, but to have the power to endure with patience and joy. That's a whole new ball game. And every time we'd go to our staff meetings, I would sit in the back all grouchy and Melissa would come up to me and she'd be like, how are you doing? And I'm like, great, someone gave me a chance to just complain about how hard my life is. <laughs> and I would, and she would just listen to me. And if you know the Stone family, and if you know Melissa and Dan, you know that their life has had no shortage of suffering in it. And if we're gonna like compare, right? Like they win for me. And she would just listen to me. And then she would respond one of these times she, after hearing my just sadness and hurt and anger at God. She goes, you know, it's actually God who's using families like you and families like us to pray the kingdom into reality. And I just like shut my mouth because I was like, I don't know what you're ascribing to me, but I just wanted to complain. And, and yet every time I have watched them, they enter in their life, and it's hard, okay? Don't get me wrong, but I want to celebrate them. They enter into the difficulties of life with endurance. They don't stop loving people. They don't stop loving their family with patience. I would have Dan reach out to me, hey, what can I pray for? And I'd be like, here's all the things that you could pray for. My life sucks. How about you? And he'd be like, just pray that I could be kind to my children. I'm like, okay, wow. <laughs> Joy. You can endure things, and you can be cranky about it. To endure the pain, the frustration, the challenge, the confusion that comes with following Jesus faithfully when the pressures of the outside world will start heating up and getting harder, and the reality of living in a broken world that's going to bring you suffering, to have joy with that, that's a whole new thing. I've never seen more joy than in this family. Like they are so certain that Jesus is coming soon. How do you get that? Because I see it in them and I want it. And I'm sure you hear it and you go, like, I would like some of that too. How do you get that? Well, if it's God's wisdom, it's his power, his glorious might, if endurance and joy come from those things which come from him, then what are we to do so that we might mature into this? Pray. All the other circumstances are gonna come at you. 
Life will get hard. Following Jesus will be painful. It's gonna happen. What are you to do? Pray. And here's the deal. If it's too hard to pray, be sure that when it's your time to not suffer, you're praying for the people that are. This is a communal thing. Because there are gonna be days where it is too hard to pray, but you can, you can use it together, which you see Paul and that he is lifted up in praying for them even as he is suffering. But he has joy because he knows that what he sees in them and what they're a part of is that God is fixing all things. He's gonna redeem it all and they get to share it together. So we pray. We pray for each other. But even more than just praying and love, we need one more thing. One more thing that Paul includes in this prayer for the Colossians. He began with it, and he's going to end this little section with it. Verse 12, giving thanks. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What is he praying? The gospel. Here's what we'll find as we keep going in Colossians, and I would encourage you to read through it a couple of times. Here's how the whole book goes. Paul tells them slash praise them the gospel. He tells them live in light of this gospel And then he tells them the gospel again. Or another way, he tells them the beauty of what Jesus has done. He tells them live in light of what Jesus has done. And then he tells them again what Jesus has done in a new and fresh way. They already received the gospel. So why is he spending all this time, the majority of the book, of retelling them truths that they already should know? Because we need to hear it again and again. They need to hear it again and again. So he tells them in this like Exodus kind of mashup, right? Like you can, you can see it kind of superimposed onto these verses, right? In the book of Exodus, God took his people who are nothing but slaves in Egypt and gave them the inheritance of the land of Canaan, right? God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. In Jesus, they've been taken from the land of darkness that was their old life of paganism and worshiping whatever power came by their way and gave them an inheritance of new creation that is coming. In the Exodus, God delivered his people from the domain of the wicked Pharaoh. In Jesus, they've been delivered from their old life trapped in sin with no knowledge of God. We have been given so much In this culture, in this world, thanksgiving comes when your list of things that you need and want is finally satisfied. In the scriptures, thanksgiving comes out of the abundance of realizing what God has done for you and what he's included you into that you did not belong in. Here's the beauty of Colossians. It's written to a church of Gentiles. They're not Jews, okay? If you read the Old Testament and you see that God chose a special people to be his, and then you do the math and realize that most of us here aren't Jewish, you can come to the conclusion that we didn't belong. We were outside of the family. The only reason we get to be in is because of Jesus. Jesus. 
We don't deserve to be in because we said a prayer. It's not entitled to us that we get to be a part of God's plan of redemption because we believe the right things. Jesus went outside and rescued us from the domain of darkness that is your life apart from him. He has given you an inheritance, okay? You will inherit something and it is the world that he's gonna redeem. We don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. If in going through our lives, we have anything but thanksgiving, it's a sign that we need to hear the gospel again. If your life right now, today, is not overflowing with thanksgiving and gratitude where you walk out and you're like, I just don't get how I could actually be a part of this, then you need to hear it again. We need to hear, I need to hear it again. So he's gonna tell it to them again and again and again. You need to hear the story of Jesus, young church, he tells them, so that you might have thanks like I have thanks. So that it won't matter if you're in prison or not, your heart will be lifted up with gratitude because you'll realize what you have been brought into is beautiful and infinite and no one can take it from us. This world will belong to this new humanity. And so he prays this for them because he wants that thanksgiving to come into them. We need to hear this for the same reasons that they do. If you've been around long enough, you can learn Christianity and not necessarily believe it. And a lot of us probably know the churchy answer of like, yeah, I know, like I need to hear the gospel again. I, you know, the gospel is not the ABC, ABCs, it's A through Z, as Tim Keller tells us. But is your life marked by thanksgiving? Or are you waiting for a certain scenario that your life would look like until you give thanks? we of all people probably need to hear this more even than the Colossian church because we can get used to it, entitled to it, especially in our culture, and forget the goodness of what we have. So go tell it to each other today. Go remind each other of the gospel today. Preach the gospel to your neighbor, then preach it to yourself, then preach it to your neighbor again. Don't stop ever retelling the story of Jesus again and again to one another. We are the richest people in the world. So I'll invite the band to come on the stage and, and we're gonna respond as we usually always do. And we're gonna come to the table. But I want you to, to think, especially in particular today, the table of the bread and the wine, something that, that really was the center of all church life for a long time. The bread and the wine, they're not a memorial. They're a Thanksgiving party where we are reminded of what Jesus has done. So I, I, I would invite you to, res, to respond in whatever way the spirit leads. But if you get up here and you're like, I don't really know how to respond, then try this. Sit down with the bread, sit down with the wine and ask Jesus, where is my life lacking Thanksgiving? Ask him, where am I not hearing the gospel enough to where my heart is lifted up to gratitude and joy? So I'll, I'll invite us in a minute. We're gonna respond like that. But for now, I just wanna end this time with prayer in the same way that Paul prays. I wanna pray for you guys. 
You can bow your heads, you can keep your eyes open. It, it don't matter. I, God, I want to pray for my, my family, my church. Love is here. I know it, I've seen it. I am asking that that love would grow. That we would not get pulled in any other direction, but to love one another as you taught us to, Jesus. That no distraction, no other category would ever be the thing that this is standard for church success, but love. Jesus, I'm praying for them that they would have wisdom and knowledge to know how to live in light of the gospel. I want them to know how to respond to your good news, Jesus, and what you've done in a way that would please you and that they would see that you are pleased by their lives. Jesus, I'm praying for this church that we would be marked by thanksgiving. If, if, it, if we're not thankful, Jesus, then drill into our hearts the good news that we never deserved. And so now use the rest of this time, Jesus. Take this sermon and let everything be forgotten that does not point to you, Jesus. And whatever does, let it be seared into our hearts and our memories. Amen.